You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, An Anchor for the Soul. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. If you would please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. On Sunday mornings, we are studying through the book of Hebrews. It's one of the greatest books in the entire Bible. And one of the things that's so great about it is that it ties together the Old Testament and the New Testament and shows us how they both point to Jesus, how the entire Bible has a cohesion and a unity and that it's all about Jesus. And today, we come to one of the greatest parts of this letter. It's in which we look at what it means to have faith. And we look at people who had faith. We learn from their examples. We learn uh, why faith is important and what our faith is to be faith in. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. If you would please read along with me, we're going to be reading in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. So please read along with me from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God has taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed the ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they seek a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land which they had gone out from, they would have the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask that as we hear it this morning, Lord, that you would build faith in us. Your, your word tells us that faith comes by hearing the word of God. So, Lord, as we give our attention, our ears to hear your word, Lord, we pray that you would work inside of us, in our spirits, in our minds, in our hearts. Lord, that you would do a transforming work, and Lord, that you would build faith in us, that we would understand what it means to have faith, and that truly we would be people of faith. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So Henry David Thoreau, the American naturalist and writer, he said this famously, he said, Most men live lives of quiet desperation. Most men live lives of quiet desperation. What he means by that, when he says that, what he means is that all of us are desperately seeking for something. We're searching for something, and most of us don't even know what it is that we're looking for, but we know that we want something, and, but we don't know how to get it. We don't know where to find it, and we spend our whole lives desperately searching for it. 
quietly in desperation, trying to fill this void that we sense inside of us, trying various things to make ourselves fulfilled and content, but we're never able to find it and take hold of it. And, and a lot of times we're not even sure what it is. We just have this sense that something's missing and we're desperately trying to find it. This is the theme, by the way, of, of the song which Rolling Stone magazine called one of the greatest songs ever written. And it's the song by you too. You know, I, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And I was looking at the lyrics of the song this week. And in this song, so Bono, he's singing about his own journey of quiet desperation, searching desperately to find fulfillment in different things. The song begins by him talking about having a beautiful relationship with somebody and, and that kind of relationship where you put all of your energy into that relationship and you convince yourself that this relationship completes you only to realize after a time that you're still searching for something more. And what Rolling Stone magazine said about this song, they said, what makes it so unique, what makes it so great, is that it touches on a truth that's deeply embedded in all of us. And that is this, that we long for and we desire something that this present world can never satisfy. And in this song, Bono, he sings about how he came to this realization that what he desired, what he was looking for, was actually a city, a kingdom that's not found here on earth. And he even says at one point, he talks about how he put his faith in Jesus. Here's one of the verses of the song. He says, you broke the bonds, you loosed the chains, you carried the cross of my shame. You know I believed it. But then he says, and this always confused me, like he, then he says, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And there are all these forums online saying, well, that means that Bono, he found Jesus, but he's still not satisfied with Jesus. But that's not what he's saying. In fact, Bono's talked about it a lot himself. He says, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. It's actually right there in the song. He's saying, yes, I found Jesus. I, I, I put my faith in him. I've received that salvation. And yet, I still haven't taken hold of that which I'm looking for. I know it's coming. I know what it is, but I still haven't taken hold of it. And that's why he says in the song, I'm running towards it. I'm running for it. And he realized that nothing on this earth can fully satisfy his deepest longings. Everything he's been searching for in his life, it's not here, but it is coming. That song is about the same thing that Henry David Thoreau was talking about when he said that we live lives of quiet desperation. We're all desperately looking for something, and many of us don't know what it is. We don't know how to get it or where to find it. And here in the Bible, God actually tells us that what that thing is, what you're ultimately looking for, and how you can actually take hold of it. The title of today's message is, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. And there are three things that we're going to see in this passage. Number one, in this text, we see how to please God. Secondly, we see, we, we read about the city that we seek. And thirdly, we read about how to get home. So how to please God the city that we seek, and how to get home, how to please God. So the letter to the Hebrews was written to a group of people who had become Christians. At one time, they were, you know, so to say, on fire for Jesus. They were passionate. They were committed. They were excited. They were 100% in. They were all in. But now that fire and that passion is gone and it's gotten to the point where some of them aren't even sure that they want to be Christians anymore. And a big part of the reason for that is because life happened to them. They're worn out. They're worn down. They've just been grinded down by the pressures of life and they're tired. And maybe some of you can relate to that. You know what that's like. Just the constant struggle of life eventually gets to you and you get worn out and tired and you start out with all this energy and zeal. You're going to take on the world. But then life happens to you and you just, it just grinds you down to the point where you're just worn out. And that's what happened to these people. That's where they were at. This letter to the Hebrews, it was written because it was written to people who were ethnically Jewish. That's why it's called the letter to the Hebrews. They were ethnically Jewish, but they had become Christians. 
And in the early days, right after Jesus' ascension, we read about how very, very many Jewish people became Christians. They recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world who God had promised to send throughout all the time past to save them from their sins and to reconcile them to God. But here's the thing, not all of the Jewish people accepted and embraced Jesus as their Messiah, and especially those who were in power did not accept and embrace Jesus. And, and a lot of the reason for that was because it would have disrupted their power structure. And so they said, no, we, we don't do Jesus. And after a while, there became a separation. Where at the beginning, you could totally be a Jewish person, part of the Jewish community, and accept Jesus and follow Jesus. But after a while, a separation took place in which Christianity became separate from Judaism. It didn't happen right away, but it, it took a while. It happened eventually. In the beginning, you could be a Jewish person, embrace Jesus, and still be considered a Jew, still be part of that Jewish community. But when that separation took place, those Jews who had embraced Jesus began to be shunned by the Jewish community, and they were treated as if they had left and forsaken Judaism. And sometimes they were even accused of blasphemy. And because of that, sometimes they were even imprisoned and even killed. And so you can imagine, if you were a person who became a Christian during that early period, when you could easily be a Christian and still part of the Jewish community, and now this change has taken place, and now you're suffering as a result of it, you can imagine how many of these people would have been tempted to say, you know, this isn't what I signed up for. I like Jesus and all, but I don't know if this is worth it. I don't know if it's worth the, all of this price that I have to pay. And so this letter was written to these people who were thinking about giving up on Jesus and going back to Judaism and back to the Jewish community because of all these hardships they were experiencing. And the writer of this book, he's writing them, and it's an urgent appeal. He's saying, don't do it. Don't do it. I know it's hard. I know you're tired. I know you're worn out. But to give up on Jesus would be the biggest mistake of your life. And he says, let me tell you why. And throughout this letter, then he builds the case for why you and I absolutely need Jesus, how Jesus alone is uniquely qualified to be the Savior that you need. And so it would be foolish for us to turn away from him and go back to our old ways. To do so would be to throw away this incredible salvation. As we read about last week, it would be to trample underfoot what God has done for you through his Son. And so the writer is writing to encourage them, to exhort them. He says at one point in chapter 13, he says, Look, Jesus went outside of the camp for you. In other words, Jesus became an outsider for you. Therefore, don't be afraid to go outside the camp. Don't be afraid to become an outsider for him. But here in chapter 11, the writer says something that would have really blown these people's minds. He's going to take them on a journey. He's going to take us on a journey through the Old Testament. Now, growing up, these Jewish people would have always been taught that the way to be made right with God, the way to please God, the way to garner God's favor was through religious rituals. Now, for the Jews, that meant the temple, the sacrifices, religious holidays, keeping the commandments. For many people today, we have modern rituals we, that people tend to believe that if you want to be made right with God, this is how to do it. This is how to garner God's favor and attention. And, you know, our modern rituals include things like going to confession or, or reciting certain prayers a certain number of times or taking certain vows or rites of passage. But here in this section, what the writer wants to show us, if you follow his line of thinking, he's going to, like I said, he's going to take us on a, on a tour of the Old Testament and show us that the Bible doesn't actually teach what a lot of people assume that it teaches. The Bible doesn't actually teach that the way to be made right with God is through rituals and, and religious practices and rituals. Rather, what the Bible teaches is that the way to be made right with God, the thing that matters to God, is not rituals, but faith. 
The way that people in the past, throughout history, have become right with God and pleased God was not by rituals, but by faith. And so that's what we need. That's what God desires from us. Not rituals, but faith. And that brings up some really big questions. For example, what is faith? Like, what is it even at all? Like, what is faith? And how do we know if we have it or not? And what is our faith supposed to be in? Are we just supposed to have faith for the sake of having faith? Or does our hope and our faith need to be rooted in something, in something particular? These are the questions that the writer is addressing here in chapter 11. He begins in verse 1 by answering the question, what exactly is faith? What are we talking about when we talk about faith? And he says this, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You know, each and every one of you, you exercise faith every day. You exercise faith as you got in your car this morning and drove here to church, right? And not just because the roads were bad, but just literally just driving a car is an exercise in faith. You have faith that the people at the factory who put your car together, they put it together properly. They didn't forget to tighten anything down and that, uh, that they did a good job. You weren't there. You didn't watch them, but you just trust by faith that they did. And my wife, Rosemary, she was watching uh, Apollo 13 the other night. And so I was kind of watching, kind of listening, and it's the story of these astronauts who were on their way to the moon, one of the missions that they went, and they were going to land on the moon and walk around and drive around and all that. But something happened along the way, and they had to abort the mission, and they almost died. And the reason, it turned out later, that the whole mission failed was because of one little part, very expensive, or inexpensive part, just a cheap little part that hadn't been installed right at a factory years earlier. One little part installed by some guy in some factory somewhere in the world caused a, a billion-dollar space mission to fail and a bunch of people to almost die. And so when you get in your car and you drive 60 miles an hour down the road, you're exercising a whole lot of faith that you believe that those workers at the factory didn't put things together wrong, that they actually did it all right. When you came in this building, you exercised faith that the architects and the builders did a good job, that they knew what they were doing, that the, this roof isn't going to collapse on you and crush you. Now, none of us were here when they built it. We didn't watch them. We didn't observe them. We didn't manage them. But we have faith that they probably did a good job and this building isn't going to collapse. You exercised faith when you sat down in that chair, that that chair was going to be able to hold your weight. Now, I'll be fair and say, that isn't blind faith, right? Like when you walked in this building, it didn't take a huge leap of faith in order to come in this building and trust that it wouldn't collapse. Because this building has existed here for over 50 years. And so you could rightly say, there is a rational basis upon which my faith is based. And so yes, I'm exercising faith, but it's not a total you know, leap into the dark. It's faith that's based on a rational basis. And in the same way, I will tell you this, faith in God is not a blind leap of faith. It's not a step out into the dark that has no rational basis. The first thing I'd like to point out to you about faith is this, faith is reasonable. I'd put it this way, faith does not contradict reason. Faith goes beyond the limits of where reason alone can take you. So faith doesn't contradict reason, but it takes you beyond the limits of where reason alone can take you. My daughter just turned eight years old the other day. So eight years ago, she was born. Uh, she was born in Hungary, and uh, when she was born, she almost died. And she was in a coma for two weeks, and they told us at that time that she had a 10% chance of surviving, but that if she survived, she had a 90% chance of being permanently handicapped, uh, specifically having cerebral palsy. And they didn't know if she'd ever uh, be able to breathe on her own. She was intubated. They said, you know, we don't know if she'll ever breathe on her own, much less if she'll ever learn to walk. And last year, 
uh, she came in third place at a running race at her school. You know, and some people might be like, third place, you can do better. We were like, third place, our daughter can walk. You know, we were like amazed. So she has a recovery, which uh, the doctors themselves kept saying, the nurses, doctors in the hospital kept saying, it was miraculous. That was the word that they used. Now, on her first birthday, we had this big party. And so the head doctor from the NICU at the University Hospital in Budapest, a prestigious hospital. That's where she was taken with the emergency ambulance and everything. They took care of her there. Well, he drove two hours to come to the birthday party of a little girl, you know, in some countryside town in Hungary. And we had about 100 people at this birthday party, and we asked the doctor to give a speech. And this doctor stood up, and what he said was this. He said, being a doctor has done more for me to convince me of the existence of God than anything else. He said, because as a doctor, there's only so much I can do. I can't actually heal anybody, you know. I can only set things in place so that they can be healed. But there are so many intangibles that I have absolutely no control over whatsoever. So yeah, I helped this little girl out, but I absolutely can't take credit for healing her. It was God who healed her. You see, faith is not contrary to reason. Faith is that which takes you beyond the limits of where direct knowledge of something alone can take you. If you've ever seen the movie Nacho Libre, this uh, main character, his name is Nacho. He's a Christian. He works at a monastery, an orphanage, and he becomes friends with this other guy in town named Escolito. And at one point, Nacho says to Escolito, he says, hey, I'm a little concerned right now about your salvation and stuff. Like, you ha why have you not been baptized? And the guy says, I don't believe in God. I believe in science. And that's a common misconception, that, that faith and science are incompatible, that you have to choose one or the other, that faith is unreasonable, and you have to choose between being a person of science or a person of faith, and that is absolutely not the case. In fact, a recent study I read about was done uh, in collaboration between the University of Michigan and the University of British Columbia. And what they wanted to see was, where are people atheists? Like, if you study certain subjects, will it tend to make you an atheist more than other subjects? And specifically, it was because there's this assumption that if you believe in science, then you don't believe in God. And so here's what they found. They found that there are actually more atheists in the humanities than there are in the sciences. And Huffington Post published this article, and they published it with the title, they published this research, and they published it with this title that said, studying science doesn't make you an atheist, but studying literature might, right? And so that's interesting, right? So they studied students, professors, and professionals in these two fields, in the fields of humanities, right, like literature, art, etc., and in the, the scientific fields. And what their research showed is that people who study science and who work in scientific fields are actually more likely to believe in God than almost any other field professionally out there. In fact, biologists, they said, are twice as likely to believe in the existence of God than English majors. I think that biologists would probably have more of a reason to believe in God than English majors do. So this study said that in universities in U.S. and Canada, almost 70% of professors in the scientific departments believe in the existence of God as opposed to around 30% of professors in the humanities. And so what that would tell us is that studying science actually causes people to believe in God rather than the opposite. So if you want to believe in God, you should go study some science, right? And the reason for that is because, like our, our, doctor, our daughter's doctor said, the scientific method can only take you so far. There's a limit to how far it can take you. But what do you do 
beyond that? What do you do about the things that you cannot measure? What do you do about things that you cannot test in a laboratory? Certainly there's more to life than just what we can see and touch and measure and test. How do you put love in a test tube? How do you measure joy? What about the things that you and I have absolutely no control over? The areas of providence, as we call it. There's so many intangibles out there that go beyond the limits of what can be measured by tests and, and quantified by the scientific method. And the writer actually touches on this there in verse 3 where he says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made of things that are visible. In other words, none of us were there. Like, none of us, we weren't there. We, none of us watched the universe come into existence. It's an area where no matter what you believe about it, it's an exercise of faith. Again, it's not faith, faith based in nothing. There are things that we can know and that we can observe, but there's a limit to that. And beyond that, no matter what you believe, you're exercising faith. And so faith is not unreasonable. It's not unrational. Faith is not opposed to ration or reason. It's, and all of us, we must admit that we exercise faith every single day. So faith is simply being assured of something that you don't see, whether it comes to God or, or something else. When it does come to God, though, we're not talking about blind faith, nor are we talking about just having faith as a kind of sentimental feeling that we have. It's not just faith for the sake of having faith. We're talking about faith which is rooted in who God is and what God has promised to do. If God exists, and all the evidence, by the way, would point to the fact that God does exist, then it's completely rational for us to believe that what he says is true and that he is absolutely able to do that which he says he will do. So after talking about what faith is in verse 1, then in verse 2 he says, By faith the people of old received their commendation. The people he's talking about specifically are the heroes, the superstars, the patriarchs of Judaism. People like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the people whom the Jews looked up to the most out of anyone in the world. And he says, look, if you look at their lives, if you look at their stories, what you'll find is that every single one of them, the reason they were great, the reason that God was pleased with them was because they acted and they lived by faith. And then he says in verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if you want to please God, if you want to be made right with God, this is what it takes. Not religious ritual, not being a, a nice and decent person. It takes faith. That's what we see in each of the lives of these people in the Bible. So what does that actually mean? What does it mean practically to have faith? Verse 6 tells us at the end of the verse, it tells us there are two elements to faith. Number one, you must believe that God exists. And number two, you must believe that he rewards those who seek him. Now on the outset, that seems like pretty simple things. But there are a lot of people who would say that they believe in God, but practically, we, we might call them practical atheists, right? Like in theory, you believe in God, but in practice, it's almost as if you don't, right? So some of us would say that we believe in God, but yet we worry and we have so much anxiety as if we don't actually believe that there's a sovereign God who is lovingly and providentially reigning over our lives and over the world, there are some of us who we seek God and we pray, but we have absolutely no expectation that anything is actually ever really going to happen. And so that's what it's telling us. You can't say that you believe in God, but be practically as if you don't. God's promise for us is this. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. He tells us to seek him with expectation. Seek and you will find. Ask and it will be given to you. Knock and the door will be opened to you. That is who God is. He is a God who wants to be known by you. A God who wants to be known by you. And so don't only believe that he exists, 
But seek him with expectation. Pray with expectation. Read his word, the Bible, with expectation that he wants to be known by you and that he wants to lead you. So let's take a look at these people that he lists here for a little bit. He says in verse 4, he talks about Abel. So he's going all the way back to the beginning. He started with creation, and now he's moving on to the first person he wants to talk about, who's Abel. Abel is the son of Adam and Eve. So in Genesis chapter 4, we read the story of Cain and Abel. Maybe you remember the story. They were both the, the sons of Adam and Eve, and Cain killed his brother Abel. And here's what happened. Cain and Abel both made an offering to the Lord. But for some reason, God was pleased with Abel's offering, and he was not pleased with Cain's offering. And people have speculated for a long time what it was about these two offerings, that the one pleased God and the other didn't. Some have speculated that maybe it was because of what they brought in their offering. So Genesis chapter 4, it says that Abel was a shepherd, and so he brought from his flocks, he brought some of the meat of his animals. And that Cain was a farmer, and so he brought vegetables. And so the supposition goes like this. Well, since God is like me, and he likes meat more than vegetables, obviously God liked Abel's sacrifice more than he liked Cain's sacrifice. Uh, that's not actually true. I don't actually like meat more than vegetables. But let's just go with that line of thinking for now. I personally don't agree with that. I don't think that's why. I think, look, Cain was a farmer. He brought what he had from his work. I think the reason lies in something that we can't even see in the text of the story because it's not something that you can even see with human eyes. I believe the root issue is not what they brought in their hands, but what they brought in their hearts when they came and brought this offering, that which only God can see. There was something, I believe, in Abel's heart as he brought this offering that pleased the Lord, and there was something in Cain's heart as he brought his offering that didn't. And the point is this, that God sees our hearts. He doesn't only care about our actions. He cares about where our hearts are at. He doesn't only want our outward compliance. He also wants our hearts. And so Cain reacted to that in a very bad way. He got angry and he killed his brother. And there in verse 4, we're introduced to this, this very interesting concept that, that's going to be carried on throughout the rest of the chapter. That even though Abel died... He still speaks because he died in faith. In other words, even though he's dead, because he died in faith, he's still alive. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute before we finish. Next, in verse 5, we read about Enoch. I love the story of Enoch. Actually, sometimes when I've been asked to guest speak, I'll speak on the story of Enoch. It's found in Genesis chapter 5, which a lot of people consider one of the most boring chapters in the entire Bible. If you, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up there. Because in Genesis chapter 5, what you have is this very long, very boring genealogy. It's basically what the kind of verses that people get stuck in when they read the Bible and they're like, I don't know if I can continue doing this. It's like this guy was born, then he had a kid, and then he died. And then his kid had a kid, and then here's what his name was, and then he died. You know, and this guy woke up and he ate breakfast, then he went to work, then he had a kid, and then he died. And then his kid died, and then everybody died, and everybody was born, he had a name, and then they died, and we don't know anything else about them. And that genealogy, it covers 1,600 years of human history, 1,600 years of human history history and what it's doing is it's giving us the 30,000 foot view on life. If you zoom out, this is what life is. You're born, you live for a while, maybe you have a kid or two, and then you die. It's like you can imagine, it's, it's almost as if it's saying every generation climbs onto a stationary bicycle and they pedal as hard as they can and they work as hard as they can until they eventually just get tired and fall off and die and then the next generation gets on and they pedal as hard as they can but we're not actually getting anywhere. We're not actually making any progress. It's a stationary bicycle. 
And the cycle just goes on and on and on. Born, had a job, had a kid, died. On and on and on. And it makes you wonder, is that all that life is? You just work for a few years, toil, hardship on this rock called earth that's hurtling through space. But in the midst of that, in the midst of this kind of hopeless view of life, we see that there was one guy who was different. One guy who stood out. This guy was, his life was actually about more than just waking up and going to work and then dying. His name was Enoch and he walked with God and he didn't just die like everybody else, but he went to heaven. It's like that line from Braveheart. Do you remember William Wallace? He says, every man dies, but not every man truly lives. And that's like Enoch. He was the man who truly lived. And I don't know about you, but I want to be like Enoch. I don't want to just live, work, die. I want to walk with God and go to heaven. And the key is faith. That's what it tells us here. Then there's Noah in verse 7. Noah built a giant boat in the middle of a desert where there was no water and it never rained. And people looked at him, as we would probably look at him too, and say, you're crazy. What are you doing? But he did it because God told him to, even though it seemed very improbable. And it took him years. You can imagine for years this guy building a boat in the middle of the desert and people coming along and mocking him all day, working and having people stand around while you work and make fun of you. But Noah persisted in faith, choosing to believe that what God said was true. And because of his faith, it says that God made him an heir of righteousness. I love that phrase because an inheritance, to be an heir means to receive an inheritance. An inheritance is not something you work for. It's not something you earn. It's something that's given to you because of who you are. You see, and that's what God did for Noah. He gave him a status. He said, Noah, this is who you are. This is your status. This is your name. And because of that, you have a right to receive this inheritance. And he said, I'm going to make you right with me. Why? Because, Noah, you took me at my word. And that's the key. Let us be people who take God at his word. The next person is Abraham. It says in verse 8, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Did you catch that? He didn't know where he was going. Where do you want me to go? Like, I don't know. That's faith. That takes a lot of faith. When every step is planned out for you, when everything is provided from the beginning, when everything's explained to you, and you know how it's all going to work out, that doesn't take a whole lot of faith. But for you to go out and say, God, I, I trust that you're guiding me. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I trust that you're going to take care of me. That's faith. So some of us, the thought of doing something like that is absolutely terrifying. It's absolutely unbearable. And, and I would encourage you, maybe this is the time in your life for you to start taking some steps of faith where you say, God, I'm going to step out in faith in this area of my life because I know that you want me to do this thing. Maybe it's going on that mission trip. Maybe it's serving in an area. It might be something else in your life. I'll tell you this. There's nothing more exciting. There's no life that is more exciting and more fulfilling than the life of faith where you are living in complete dependence on God. If you think that the Christian life is boring, then you're doing it wrong. Like, literally, like, that should be a test for you. Is the Christian life boring? Yes. Well, you're doing it wrong. If you're all in, if you're following God by faith, then there is no life that is more exciting, more stretching, more dynamic, more fulfilling than the life of walking with God by faith and doing His will in the world. Secondly, I want to talk to you about this next section that we see really towards the end here starting in verse 9 and to the end of the section, verse 16, and that is the city that you seek. See, the second part of the section, we read about Abraham and Sarah. It tells us something very interesting about them. In verse 9 and 10, it says, they went on this journey of faith, and they lived in tents because they were sojourners. They were pilgrims. It says why in verse 10. They were looking for a city that has foundations, 
whose designer and builder is God. Well, what city was that that they were looking for? We'll keep reading. In verse 13, it says that all these people we read about, they all died in faith. They did not receive the thing that they had been promised, but they had seen it and they had greeted it as from afar. And that's why they lived as strangers and exiles on this earth. Verse 14 says they were seeking a homeland. Verse 16 says the homeland that they sought is not a place that can be found on earth. What they were searching for is something better, a better country, a heavenly country. And it says God has indeed prepared that city for them, which they were seeking. It says in chapter 13, later on, he explains it this way. He says, here on earth we have no lasting city, but what we seek is the city which is to come. And what that means is that all of these people, and, and all of us actually, we are seeking, we are desiring, we are pursuing something which cannot be found here on earth. You know, like Henry David Thoreau, when he said that all men live lives of quiet desperation, when Bono talked about how he's looking for something that he still hasn't found, that's what they're talking about. We're all desperately seeking after something. In other words, there is a desire behind your desires. There's something that you are pursuing. In all of your pursuits, there's a deeper pursuit that you're pursuing. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it. Listen to this. He said, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts... They would know that they do want, and they want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep that promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or when we first think of some foreign country, or when we first take up a subject that excites us, these are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can ever really satisfy. No, I'm not speaking of what can ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or careers. I'm speaking about the best possible ones. There was something that we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife. The hotels and scenery may be excellent. The job may be a very interesting job. But something has evaded us. And this, this is the frustration that all of us experience in this life. And he, he goes on to say this. He says there are two ways that people generally respond to this, and then there's a third. So there's two ways and actually a third. The first way that people generally respond to this frustration, this sense of unfulfillment, this quiet desperation, is by trying harder and doing more, spending more money, going on more vacations. They divorce their spouse and they get a new spouse. They get a new car. They get a nicer house. They try a different career. They move. You know, and the other response is to give up and just become cynical and jaded and say, well, I guess life just stinks and then you die and that's it. But then he says, you know what, there's actually a third response. There's the Christian response. And the Christian response to this feeling of frustration, this feeling of never being truly satisfied or fulfilled is to recognize that what you are really looking for is a city, the city of God. And all of the best things in this life, none of them will ever really fulfill you. In fact, they're not meant to because all they are are foretastes. They're shadows, they're glimpses, they're echoes of the real thing which is to come. He says later on, he says, it's as if we're searching for a song we've never heard, the scent of a flower we've never smelled, a country we've never seen but we know is our home. C.S. Lewis concludes this section by saying, If we find in ourselves, therefore, a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were actually made for a different world. You see, what we long for is heaven. It's the city of God. That's what our hearts desperately seek after. Here on earth, we're sojourners, but that city 
is the final destination where we're reconciled with God and where things are finally right. The way that we know deep down that they should be. The way that we feel that they ought to be. And so finally I'll conclude by talking about this. How do we get home? How do we get home? Faith, we're told in verse 1, is ultimately linked to hope. He says faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So all these people, that's what their faith was. It was concrete hope that they had. It wasn't wishful thinking. It wasn't, oh, I hope that it'll work out. It was a future reality which they looked to and which they were sure of. And they died in faith. See, what that means for us is that there are some questions that will not be answered in this life. There are some desires that will not be fulfilled in this life. But by faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you, when this life is over, you'll get to go home. The philosopher Blaise Pascal, he was also a Christian, and here's what he said. He said, there's something nostalgic and reminiscent in us that desires to get back to that place that we came from. And the reason is because we were made for perfection, and we have a lingering memory of it. And that's why we desire to return to that place where everything is as God intended it to be. See, here's what this tells us. Everyone dies, but some people die in faith. And it's by faith that you receive the gift of God's grace. By faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross. So that you can be forgiven. So you can be accepted by God. So he can impute his righteousness to you. In other words, he can give you a status. Give you a name. Give you a future. And you can know him as father. And when this life is over, you can go home. Your true home. That home that you've been longing for and pining after all of your life. You know, Donald Barnhouse was the pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for many years. And he lost his wife to cancer when she was young and it left him alone to raise their daughter who was just a child at the time. And this man, Donald Barnhouse, he was trying to help his daughter and help himself process the loss of their wife and mother. And once when they were driving uh, on the road, a, a huge semi-truck passed them. And as it passed, the shadow of the truck swept over the car. And he had a thought. And so he asked his daughter, you know, honey, tell me this. Would you rather be run over by a truck or by the shadow of a truck? And she replied, well, obviously by the shadow because the shadow can't actually hurt us at all. And Dr. Barnhouse replied, you're right. You see, if the truck doesn't hit you, but only its shadow, then you're fine. And it was only the shadow of death that went over your mother, She's actually alive. In fact, she's more alive than we are. And that's because 2,000 years ago, the real truck of death hit Jesus. And death crushed Jesus. And we believe in him. And because we believe in him, now the only thing that can come over us is the shadow of death. And the shadow of death for us is actually the entrance into glory. So I encourage you today, look to Jesus. Put your faith in him. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you, Jesus, you took our place. You took that death for us, Lord, that we could have life. Thank you, Lord, that on the cross, our sins were placed on you. Everything that we deserved, you took, Lord, so that we could receive that which we don't deserve, that which you deserved, that we could receive the hope, the promise, the glory. We could receive that true home, the city of God that we've always been looking for. Lord, I pray that we would live that life with that expectation, that we would enjoy the things of this life, but we'd understand that they are not the ultimate things, that ultimately what we long for is found in you. And Lord, may we live that life of faith, like Enoch, like Abraham. May we look at it and embrace it from afar and know that it is truly one day coming. So Lord, we pray that truly now we would know salvation with confidence in Jesus. 
and that we would walk this life in faith in you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 